0: welcome to the dumbest guy in the room i'm john dick founder and ceo of civic science and the only male in a family of four which means i'm pretty much always the dumbest guy in the room thank you for lending us your ears and your brain for another episode of our podcast to revitalize the music industry. That statement might sound more obvious than it is. Since the turn of the century, innovation in music came from the business sector. Software revolutionized the economics, while media platforms like YouTube and even American Idol made the industry infinitely accessible. But as Bob Lefsetz pointed out in part one of our music episode, streaming is the technological endgame for music. Every song ever made, available on demand, game over. And with nearly every woman, man, and child in America carrying a recording device in their pocket, not to mention free means of distribution and marketing, barriers to entry in music have dissolved. According to civic science data, nearly one third of American households have purchased a musical instrument since the beginning of the pandemic, count me among them. But don't expect the next evolution in music to come from a 45-year-old dad who just bought his first guitar, or from a TikToker shooting videos in their bedroom. Music, like all art, sports, and entrepreneurship, is as much about hard work as it is talent. Sure, one in a million might win a 10-game parlay, but most truly successful people had to grind, often fail, and grind again before breaking through. For part two of this music episode, I want to introduce you to Matt Mangano, the bass player from the Zac Brown Band, one of the most popular country music acts in America. Matt will share the artist's perspective on the industry how professional musicians were uniquely equipped to weather the pandemic, and what music will look like when everything opens up again. Matt also happens to be a stats geek who nearly studied computer science instead of music. So we'll talk about a few other random statistical anomalies, like why only 29% of people know how to order a steak, and whether LED light bulbs are responsible for all the social unrest in our world. So take a listen backstage to the gifted Matt Mangano and me. The dumbest guy in the room.
1: Maddie, how are you? I'm great, John. How are you? Thank you so much for
0: having me. Great to have you here, man. Last time I saw you uh, was about 2 a.m. in a dive bar at Times Square. You guys, <laughs> you, you guys had just played Jimmy Fallon, I think. That's right. And
1: uh,
0: you, You're in person. Yeah, you and um, you and your crew sent me home. Uh, to give a speech the next morning in no condition whatsoever to give a speech. So I hope you, hope you were proud of that.
1: Did uh how did that speech go? Rocked it. You remember it rocked. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. I, I kind of always use that. Uh, I, rem- I always remember that. And the fact that you can function that well in front of that many people with that little sleep after a night like that, um, it's a, uh, it's kind of a benchmark for me now, so. You, you inspired
0: me well, I've been training my whole life for it man uh, I don't make a habit of it I, it's a th- three day recovery at this point so how's Nashville getting through the pandemic I mean when you think of when I think of cities that are are, are most penalized by the social distancing and the restrictions and all of these kinds of things um, it's going to be a city like a Las Vegas and and a place like Nashville whose lifeblood is so much about, crowds getting together indoors right so how's how's that been how have you gotten through it i know you've had a lot of time to spend with your family over the last year but what's your take on kind of the nashville scene and how it's how it's weathering all this
1: well from what i've seen and you know i mean social media is really fun to you know you know it's fun to to watch it all happen um on social media but you know like the honky tonks for example you know downtown nashville they got hit. Obviously, they had to shut down for a while, but they they popped back open as soon as they could. And you know, I mean, it was even kind of contentious for a while. Like, what you know, people would have, you know, full packed bars when they're supposed to be distancing and masked and all that. No one was distanced and no one was masked. Um, and that's just kind of how it rolls in Nashville. You know, down especially down there. We're talking Lower Broadway. Um, you still see the bachelorette parties going around on the on the you know uh pedal taverns and people are basically kind of you know i would say it's scaled back from what it was pre-pandemic but but they're pushing it to the limits down there you know getting as much as in as they can um i mean i know that from what i've seen on players down on broadway like they're still working um kind of still a lot of questions out there you know people are kind of asking what kind of you know i'm seeing on social media forums and facebook you know base player forums like people are kind of testing the waters saying you know are they still have equipment down there this this room still have you know the stuff still there can we go do it um so i mean people are really trying uh as much as they can to to get out but yeah it's taken a hit certainly and then you know i mean the studio scene um you know the. I'm trying to think it was probably late summer maybe early fall when I was seeing people getting back out there in the studio and at first it was everyone was tiptoeing into the sessions um, and you know Nashville I don't know how much you know about the music studio scene in Nashville but you know I mean it's like a business you know I mean there's they do it it's all union sessions um, you know ten to two two to five um, all on the time card and so they've been very careful. And I have not heard about COVID spreading too much in the studios, in the, the, the pro sessions, you know? Um, so this, so, you know, that's good news for the country music world, recording world, right? People can still make records. Um, but even that has, has all scaled back. You know, I would say that, you know, you still have your sort of A-list core group of players who are, are working, um, And the people who might not have been the first call players might not be working as much as they were, you know, pre pandemic.
0: There's probably like anything else, but particularly in music, a broad spectrum, you know, you've got, you've got professional musicians who maybe had a little, a little bit of a cushion financially to get through some of this. Then you've got the other end of the spectrum, which are the people that are playing five gigs a week to pay the rent. Right. And it's going to hit everybody a little differently along, along the way. Um, the
1: thing I will say, though, about about players, you know, when I say musicians, I'm talking about, you know, we're talking players, like working musicians who, you know, play their instrument for a living, um, not necessarily write songwriters or lead artists, but just, you know, your day-to-day working folk. And um, we all know how to do this. Like, you know, before we were able to work as a full-time musician, you know, we weren't. And we had to do other things. Um, So, you know, I I know folks who, you know, maybe, who were maybe working full-time pre-pandemic, maybe going back to, you know, doing music part-time and, you know, teaching part-time or, you know, I know folks who build furniture. I know folks who have gone to be Uber drivers. You know, I mean, like, it's just across the map. And that's, you find that in Nashville anyway. Like, even in, you know, people like Outside of the trends of the industry, just personally, on their own career, have, you know, rises and falls. And, you know, I remember hiring someone to do drywall one time at, at a house. And, you know, they came in to do the drywall and we start talking and he's like, oh, yeah, I played in so-and-so's band. And, you know, you just don't know. Like, that's that's Nashville Every, Everyone's a player, you know, and everyone's at some varying stage of their career now
0: that's not something i had ever thought about as it relates to music particularly in nashville that that most people have been prepared for this through ups and downs of their maybe not quite this finite and severe i guess all at once but yeah they've all had to they've all had to brave ups and downs that's uh that gives me more hope right that we're going to come out of this and we're not going to have you know the carnage that you might think you'd have in a lot of other industries that have been really shut off by by this pandemic. Um, So some of the things that we look at in our world, studying music as an industry, music as a cultural phenomenon, social impact, all of those kinds of things that we try to understand, both because music is a part of the human condition and tells us so much other things about people. But music is an industry, right? And there's lots of money made and lost. So we, we pay a lot of attention to it for lots of different reasons. Before I, a couple key trends I want to get your thoughts on that we see that are, that even preceded preceded COVID. What are some of the biggest trends, when you look back at, go back to 2000, uh, 2000 2001, you just started touring with John Mayer. Uh, and go all the way through to today, what are some of the biggest trends that you've seen shift from that from that time until now?
1: Uh, well, the, the biggest one that I can think of is is ownership of music. So, you know, and that that's been sort of a huge theme since then, I mean, if you look at where John actually got his biggest popularity on the internet was Napster, right? You remember Napster? Oh,
0: sure, sure I do. And, I'm and old Jerry enough to remember that. Napster.
1: So there were all of these like bootleg recordings of John from like shows, you know, live shows, and then like little st- stupid demo songs that we made in our dorm room about you know about a dog getting run over, or something like that, or you know rhyming the word orange. Like we, we made songs about all this kind of stup- stupid stuff, or just for fun. But it got out there, um, and so anyhow, like I mean, I think John was one of the one of the biggest success stories from from Napster. Uh, I can't prove it, but I just I think that because of what I saw. But then you know you fast forward to the iPod, which didn't come out until you know a few years later, right? Um, you still were able to own your music. Um, and you know, but I'm talking about digital, owning digital music, um, files. And now what we're looking at is you know you basically are renting your music if you subscribe to Apple Music or Spotify. Um you know, it's hard to, to have a copy you know that you know is yours. Like all they have to do is just take it off the site and it's gone. Um, so I mean, that's the biggest change that I've seen is how to navigate that, you know how to how to make money off that as a as an artist, as a songwriter, as a producer. Um, so you know those are the big struggles right now, uh, especially with, with streaming and, and you know, It's so much less money to go around. How do you fairly divide it up? And, you know,
0: well, we've obviously watched streaming grow and grow and grow. And even through the pandemic, it's grown Um, and it's changed the way almost the strategy of music a bit. Right. We know. Um, being on playlists is such an important part of the economics of streaming because that gets your song played. The most impressions would be the word we would use in, in digital media. And, 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 and so it's not a surprise that you start to see a lot of crossover and collaboration kind of things happen because when you've got uh, Chris Stapleton and Justin Timberlake doing a song together, it's going to now show up on twice as many playlists because it fits some, some theme or genre that some, right. So that all happens. You guys, your last album, um, the owl, right. Was, um, uh, you did a lot of collab, a lot of collaboration work and really some awesome, like out of left field ones, like Skrillex and Benny Blanco. Uh, and, and of course there's the, 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 the economic benefits of having that sort of traveling through the sphere of streaming, but it also gives you an opportunity to really expand your music and expand the art, right? So talk a little bit about how you guys were thinking through who do I, who do I align with for this song or, or how did that come together? Did you, did you go to an artist first and say, hey, we have this, um, let's collaborate on something or did, did you guys work up a song and say who would be the best person? It
1: is, you know, I, I think if you back up a little bit, Zach, um, I mean, it all comes from Zach. He's, you know, Zach pushes us more than anyone else pushes us. I mean, just to be, just to open our minds and think differently than, you know, and we're, it's really easy to get, to get sort of settled into a rut musically. And, you know, it's comfortable to, to play what you know. And so Zach, um, he had a project called Stir Roosevelt, which was, you know, a few years back, um, which was sort of like a EDM-ish sort of project, side project for him. And he kind of really got into that world, you know, electronic world, dance music world. So I think that that sort of opened the doors for him to try something different with ZBB. And so he had gotten together with uh, a writer named Pooh Bear who writes a lot with uh, Justin, uh, Justin Bieber, I almost said Justin Timberlake one of the Justins um, Pooh Bear wrote a lot with Beaver he's an amazing songwriter, amazing singer um, and so his partner is a guy named Sasha Sirota and so Zach got with Sasha and Poo Bear they kind of wrote songs that were geared toward that world and I think through, that, through them they hooked up with, with uh, Skrillex and so that's we did uh, I think OMW was the song we did with Skrillex and so that was all just a result of Zach wanting to push the boundaries and you know um let's take this as far as we can take take it and so that was a a really cool you know they kind of built the track initially with Skrillex and then brought it to the band and we played along with what was there and kind of added in our own you know acoustic you know real instruments with the all the program stuff so it, it was a fun thing, you know.
0: Well, um, it it was bold. I loved it. I loved it.
1: Um, definitely bold. Like when you when you talk about the genre where we come from, which is you know mainstream country music, and and again we got beat up a lot over that you know collaboration on social media, and you know that's fine. I I'm so guilty though of, of reading the comments. <laughs>
0: <laughs> stop doing that, man. Stop doing it. Stop doing it. I know. That. I know. Everyone
1: tells me to stop, but I I do it and. I mean, I can take it, I can stomach it, um, and I don't ever engage,
0: but. Well, if you're not pissing somebody off, you're not trying hard enough. That's, that's my, my, that's my view on it. Uh, but you know, it also speaks to the fact that you have established this band in such a way that you can take risks like that and push music forward and do a lot of things that's harder to do when somebody's doesn't have the flexibility or the freedom to do that. And, and so, you know, kudos to you guys for pushing it for sure. Um, You know, the other thing that's fascinating is kind of in reverse of the makes perfectly good sense that this sort of the streaming trend has been on the rise while broadcast radio listening has been in such a such decline. It's from in our data from from 2016 until today that the average person who said they listen to a broadcast radio station has gone from 61 percent to just under 50 percent. We are seeing a little bit of a bump early this year, which I think as people start to go back to work, they turn the radio on in the car again. But 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 country music. I don't think we talk enough about about the role country music plays in really keeping broadcast radio afloat. Right. It's such a those trends we see um, hit the sort of pop music and hip hop music a lot heavier. Whereas in country, you still see a a very heavy emphasis on radio play. Uh, I know that's a big part of of what you guys do when you're touring and traveling. And um, how are you how do you sort of balance needing to kind of understand the economics of streaming? But at the same time, you've got to you've got to yield to the to the radio stations as well.
1: Yeah, you, you know, I the the way our band came up was always sort of under the you know country radio was was basically you know carried us. Um, so I think that it, it makes perfect sense for us to you know service country radio as much as possible. Still, you know, even even with streaming, you know, it I think streaming just sort of naturally will. I I guess this is probably. A, bold statement, but it'll, it naturally just sort of carries itself. Like it, if you want to know, if you're sitting in front of a computer and you want to hear Zach Brownman, you know exactly where to go. Um, so, you know, country radio. Yeah, I don't know why it's still so big in country. I mean, I, in country music, why terrestrial radio is so big still in country music.
0: I have some theories, I have some theories, maybe a little more data too, is that if you think about where country music geographically is most popular, they, it's going to be places that probably under index in terms of a high speed Internet everywhere you go. Right. Reliable cell phone service, because you oftentimes you're streaming off of your 4G or 5G driving you know, down the road. Um, you've got people that spend more time in the car trend you know, going from place to place maybe a longer drive to work from their house to to wherever as they go um, those things all sort of contribute to the socio cultural kind of psychographic of the, of the country music listener. so I think that's that is a big part of it and that's probably not going to go away super fast right um, it makes a lot it actually makes a, quite a bit of sense when you think about it that way um,
1: yeah I guess that you know that's what drives the attendance to our shows too you know I mean if you're if, I, if we have a song that's in you know the top 10 country radio charts, you know, country radio airplay whatever, whichever chart you want to talk about beyond um, you know, that's that's when our attendance is the best at, at shows
0: Sure, and sure. I think
1: you would probably see that across, you know, many country artists, you know, people in the top 10 are going to have better attendance at their shows now we are fortunate that we have a such a solid fan base that if our if we don't have a song on country radio at the time we're still going to have solid attendance at the shows and people still want to come to the shows to see you know they want to hear the hits they want to see what sort of new weird things we're gonna do and you know they just want to see a band
0: well and your shows have become an event right it's it's as much about the the festival feel of a Zach Brown show as it is about anything right it's the it's a party it's you know i when i was a kid my folks would go to jimmy buffett shows and right it was just all part of the fun of the whole the end and you weren't just there to Clock in, walk in, and walk out. You were that generally there a few hours earlier pre-gaming. You know, maybe stumbling out on the way home. Um, most likely stumbling out on the way home. Um, so that's the that's what that that. And I know when we go to your shows, like that's the thing as much. I look forward to that as much as I do. Not that I, of course I love the music, but the whole experience is awesome. Um, all right, so let's look forward. You know, we are hopefully seeing the end of the tunnel, however far off on the distance it is. Um, Big shows are are going to be one of the last things to come back, particularly indoor shows, but so much of what you guys do is outside. You're definitely better off than say Broadway or symphonies where you're gonna have a bunch of people packed indoors. we're even seeing some really positive things in consumer trends. Thirty-six uh, percent of Americans feel like they'll be comfortable going to a big concert, what we'll call a major event, by June. Uh, that n- number jumps to fifty-one percent by August. So hopefully, we start to see you know half of America being ready to to get out into these big venues by. Uh, you know, before Labor Day, just under half. And this is the first time we've seen it under half since probably March. Well, that's not true. Probably since the summer. I'm not sure anybody in March knew how bad this was all going to be. Forty nine percent of people still think it's going to be six months or more until they feel comfortable doing sort of a major event. But but still half of America. And I would bet that forty nine percent is probably a lot older. they're not going to be the people coming to your shows anyway. Right. So 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 we know we know we're going to come out of this. It's going to be the roaring 20s again. There's so much pent up uh, demand to do these things again. Frankly, there's a lot of pent up money that people haven't been spending on these things that they're going to unleash. Um, that's one big trend that we're, we're expecting to see unfold. Another big one, um, and I know you and I have talked about this before, is we've seen lots of really strong sales of instruments, music, equipment, technology. Twenty one percent of Americans bought a musical instrument uh, in the six months after the pandemic started, and another 10 percent have bought an instrument since September. So lots of people are reconnecting with music, maybe creating new music. So so these are all sort of building blocks of of what could be a really exciting future for music. What, what do you what, what's you what do you predict for the future? Uh, maybe not so much when but how do you think it's going to come back? What what do you think is going to be different about it? Um, and and you know, which of these other trends that we've seen do you think are going to accelerate? Predict predict the future. tell us Matt Mangano's future. What's it look like? <laughs> not your future, but music's future from right. your perspective.
1: Future, as, as told by me, I think that you're going to see me. Uh, So, you're gonna see smaller shows, smaller venues come back first. I think they're they're gonna be testing the waters for the big shows. Um, I just heard today that Variety Playhouse in Atlanta has a show, their first show back is booked in for April 24th or something like that. I'm not sure who the artist is, but... um, Is that
0: an indoor venue or an outdoor venue?
1: Tabernacles, So what did I say? Variety Playhouse, it's it's an indoor venue. Okay. Yeah. so you know, I don't know what I don't know what sort of capacity that'll be. Um, I think you're going to start to see maybe 25% capacity uh, on shows, whether it's indoor or outdoor, um, just to start out with. I think you're going to see people selling tickets in like groups or pods. You know, like you know, because the seating is not going. You're not going to be sitting people next to each other. So you might have a group of six. Seats and then you might have you know ten feet of space or so and then another group of six people and then the row behind that you might skip a row you might go to the row behind that and then offset from those two pods would be the third pod you know sort of like a diamond pattern so that no one's like coughing forward onto you know whether you see whether or not you see masks um, will probably depend on the region of the country where you go to sure uh, you know and then. Um, you know, and I think that these, like with the larger venues anyway, I think you're going to see, you know, the 25% capacity. They're going to take a hit financially, but they're testing the waters. You know, they and they're they sort of. I look at it like I bet they're going to be making an investment in just getting the whole, you know, ship running again. You know, so they might take take a hit on the early shows, you know, and to, in order to get back to normal. To, to show that you can have successfully put on shows at 25 and then 50%, you know, whatever, scale it up each time until you're back to 75 or hundred. You know, I don't know. I'm a little, I'm a little less hopeful about getting back to hundred percent capacity anytime in the next couple of years, you know, especially if we're looking at, you know, this thing becoming possibly endemic by the end of next year end of this year, rather. Um, so, you know, and I guess if it does become endemic, then maybe that is good news. And it's, it's going around just like the common cold and, you know, um, you just live with
0: it. I would bet the under on back to 100 percent by June of 22. I would take the under on that, um, which I think we would all take. But if we're at 50 percent by the end of this year, I think that's a big win also. Um,
1: you know, a lot of these venues require, they rely on um, vendor, their vending, you know, selling beer and, you know, that's how they make their money. Right. So when you have a limited capacity, you're going to sell a limited amount of product. So, you know.
0: Well, I think part of the other thing that we need to bring music back into the public consciousness a bit too, it, it has taken a back seat. First of all, it's always the whenever we're dealing with hardship and crisis and then you've got politics and all these other things, music just doesn't become quite as important. It goes in the background now and there's not a lot of been a lot of new music being made to get people excited about. So I think slowly turning the dimmer switch up is gonna start to reconnect people with music too. And like you said, Lots of people, there's going to be people are getting back to the recording studios. Uh, People are, are, I'm sure, writing a ton of music while they're sitting at home right now, not doing a lot of other things. So we could see a really great renaissance sometime starting in the summer, I hope, and then into the the years to come. Um, And then you guys, what, you hopefully go back on tour sometime next year. I mean, how are you even booking dates? I'm sure every band in the world's trying to lock up every venue they can get their hands on. So what's that like right now?
1: I think it's just sort of a, a wait and see you know for us i mean we definitely want to get back out there as soon as they'll let us so you know as, as soon as it looks like we can put on successful shows with with an audience you know we'll, we'll go do it and and i and i know there's people working on it right now to make it happen um so and then you know zach's been writing a bunch lately um he's he's been he's been killing it so there's some some great news great new material um, that we hope to have recorded before we can before the next time we are able to get back out touring so um, you know we're we're working to make it happen I know that the first time that we are able to go out and play a show live in an audience in you know it's going to be it's going to be very special and I think probably pretty emotional for a lot of people too you know just I mean I we've all talked about it you know the guys in the band and i are on a text thread that has been sort of constant for a couple years but you know we kind of talk about what it's going to feel like for us just to hit that first chord and you know the minute the lights come up um so we want it you know we want it back uh we know it's going to look different but but we're willing to to ride it out you know until we can get there
0: well, I know, I mean, we all can't wait for so many reasons, you know, just being on the other side of this, seeing music again, that energy from you guys and, and all musicians, I think that get back at it, that energy is going to be palpable for to everybody there. It's going to be so awesome when we're, when we're ready for it. Hey, listen, the two things we all know about bass players, one is they're the most important player in the band, and two, uh, they seldom get the spotlight, right? So... I thought we would give you an opportunity to tell us all a little bit about yourself, your background, where you're from, how you got into music. Uh, I'd love to hear some things about what inspires you in music and then the winding road that, that landed you in the Zach Brown band. would love to just hear some of that background from you.
1: Well, sure. Um, the, actually the third thing about bass players is that hardly anybody actually chooses the bass. Usually the bass kind of finds you. Um, and that's what happened to me. I did join a band when I was 16. Uh, with some guys who were about 15 years older than I was. Hmm. Um, A drummer lived down the street and knew me and knew that I knew how to play the bass. And this was a sort of a, in 1992, it was like a you know, pop country band that was maybe a little bit ahead of its time. And we would get these gigs in the Central Valley opening up for big country artists who were coming through. So we'd be the local support. So when I was 16, we got to open up for Patty Loveless, Joe Diffie, uh, sixteen, Steve Warner. Oh yeah. Um, who else? Yeah. So a bunch of big country acts that came through in Canford and in Visalia. So you know, I remember going having to wait outside of bars or clubs because I wasn't old enough to be in there. I would only go into play, then I have to come back out. And I remember being yelled at by angry stage managers for like stepping on piles of cables or something like that. So it kind of kicked my butt early on. But even then, I wasn't thinking that, I wasn't imagining that this would be a forever type thing. Um, So then when it came to college time, I actually stayed around in my hometown for a couple years and went to the community college there called College of Sequoias. And studied some basic music theory, studied some ear training, which was actually an invaluable class in my musical development. So then when it came to you know finally time to, to get out, um, I applied I actually had been accepted to USC, Southern California as a computer science major. I was gonna go there and study computer science. And this is right in, you know, ninety five, ninety-six, dot com boom. Uh, and then I ended up going to Berkeley College of Music instead. <laughs> so <laughs> I totally missed a huge opportunity there, <laughs> but that's all right.
0: It seems like you made the right call.
1: For me, I think I did.
0: There were as many busts as there were booms, probably many more. So I think you uh, think you did well for yourself.
1: Yeah, I, I hope so. Um, so, yeah, I, in early or middle of 97, I, I ventured off to Boston, headed to Berkeley College.
0: You had some, uh, some famous friends there, I imagine. A lot of other great musicians came up through that school.
1: You know, at that time, yeah, I mean, that, at that time nobody was famous, but it was... Sure. You know, uh, the, most, the most notorious is uh, my friend John Mayer, who was my roommate at some point, um, you know, in the second semester of, of that year. Uh, so I had met John and Clay Cook, who is my bandmate in Zach Brown Band, we had a mutual friend who said, hey, you need to meet these guys. I think you would really get along with them. And so I met John and Clay at the same time and they had a band called Lo-Fi Masters. And so I started playing with their band, Lo-Fi Masters. And so what we would do is go to the, at Berkeley. So at Berkeley, I don't know how familiar you are with the school, but it's kind of structured to where all of the industries you know, all the parts of the industry are represented. So you have songwriting majors, you have music production majors, you have, um, you know, music synthesis majors, you have performance majors. And so all these people come together on the projects that you have to turn into class. So what we would do is, you know, John would, get a, would have a songwriting project that he had to turn in for a class. So he and Clay would write a song and then would. we would find a friend who was a music production major who had access to the studios and they would book the studio and we would go into the studio to record the song and then also as a player you could you know that could be a performance requirement too so all of these things were working together and you get a free recording out of it nice so a lot of those early songs that that john and clay wrote were demos done at studios there at berkeley um, and then at some point I needed a new roommate, and John needed a new roommate. So so we schemed to get this giant room that was on the corner. It was room number 737. And it had a walk-in closet. So we got it, and I sent, I had I had been buying recording gear, you know, back home in California. I had a a tape machine, I had a an ADAP machine, which is like an early digital tape recorder, it recorded eight tracks on a VHS tape and SVHS tape.
0: And what was your major? What was your major at Berkeley?
1: My major was one. Okay. So they have a major called professional music. And so it's basically a choose your own adventure major. And it's for people like me who cannot ever make up their mind what they want to do. Um, So in professional music, you can get a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So I dabbled in production, uh, music synthesis, uh, you know, Music business, just a little bit of everything that interested me.
0: Yeah, in my, in my world, we call that a liberal arts degree. That's kind of how I how I punted on making any decisions. All right, so go back. So you're moving into this room with John with all this equipment you've got coming with you.
1: So I, yeah, shipped out a mixer and some microphones, and we stuck it in the walk-in closet, and that was our studio. It was called Studio Seven Thirty Seven, the room number, and I actually still use that business name to this day. Um, so John would write these songs. And you know, like we'd be sitting there, it kind of started, he'd be sitting on the bed and he'd start riffing on a, a song and then something would happen, like somebody would walk in the room and he'd start making up a song about them walking in the room, whatever they were doing. And uh, I'm like, that's, that's awesome, that's really cool. We have to record that right now. So I'd whip out the microphone and say, sing it again, record it. You know, he'd mess around with it a few times until we got something that was good. And then we would realize we just, you know, we realized we just made something here. Um, let's go back and add some parts to it. You know, call in the friends that play other instruments to, to play on top of it. And, you know, this is all underneath the umbrella of you're not allowed to play music in the dorms at Berkeley. Like it, it's, it's at that time it, anyway, it was banned. You could go to the practice rooms, but if you got caught playing in your room, you get in trouble.
0: Why is that? What was the logic of that? You'd think that would be some, where some of the best
1: art would happen. It is where the best art happened, but I, it, I think it was a fairness thing. Like you couldn't tell the acoustic guitar players that they could play in their room, but the drummers that they couldn't play in their room.
0: That makes so, good sense.
1: Yep. So this practice rooms down the hall, you know, where you're supposed to play, but we would, when we would record, we would have somebody on RA watch. So, you know, they'd give a little tap on the door when the RAs walking by (laughs) and we'd stop. Um, So, but uh, there was actually a recording of John's called Comfortable, which was on his first EP, um, which was done entirely in the 737 Mass Ave dorm room.
0: That's a great story.
1: Yeah, it it really is. And it was special. You know, I don't think any of us realized how big that would become. But We all knew at the time, I think, that it was special. Um, And so, you know, I mean, the same thing with John. It's like you, you just knew that he was going to do something big. Like just the way that he would, uh, you know, (laughs) the way he would talk to people, or the way he would, the things he would do to to get interest in himself, or the way he would just connect with people with this playing and songwriting. Um, So I got to see that early on, you know, with John.
0: If I asked John Mayer today, what kind of a roommate you were, what would he say?
1: Uh, he, he'd probably say that I was more like a mother. I'd be like a room mother. I'd be like, John, you need to pick up your clothes, John.
0: So you weren't, you weren't the messy one.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's great. All right, so take us past Berkeley. So you finished there?
1: So I finished at Berkeley. Uh, so yeah, John and Clay actually left after that first year. And they asked me to come down with them. They went to Atlanta, which is where Clay is from, to kind of just get their career going, you know, not wasting more time at school. And personally, you know, I really wanted to go, but I felt obligated to stay at school, um, finish up. So I declined. And then a couple years later, when I actually did finish school, I did end up in Atlanta. uh, And I moved down, became roommates with John again in Atlanta. Uh, He and Clay had since parted ways, but he had just put out his EP called Inside Wants Out, and he was really doing well in the Atlanta, you know, coffee house scene at that time. So Eddie's Attic was the name of the venue that he sort of came up in. And um, I got to see him, watch him grow his fan base, like in real time. You could see from show to show, he would do a show a month at Eddie's, and you know his audience would almost double each time to where he was playing sold out double shows at eddies um it, it was spectacular and so it was just him and his bass player david Labriere, at that time and
0: and now are you gigging are you gigging with somebody are you doing gigs with somebody else at this point
1: so i got a job working at a a um is a recording studio that recorded radio spots but and then I picked up uh my first touring gig was with an artist named Michelle Malone, uh out of Atlanta. And I got that, you know, I met her through John and David Labriere. They both have had toured with her in the past. So that was my first touring experience was going out with Michelle. We hopped in a van and a trailer with eight people or so and went all around the country, you know, just hustling.
0: The way it's uh, supposed to be.
1: It was man, I mean it is I look back on that experiences like that kind of shaped me the most as far as who I am as a person and as a you know a, as a musician too. Really, I mean, I learned a lot about you know how to resolve conflict with people, how to get along with people who I was you know there were a lot there was people on this tour who I ended up having a lot in common with, but in the beginning we were from totally different worlds and there was some headbutting and. Um, so I learned a lot about myself and how to, you know, be a team player in that gig. And and also I saw the country. I'd never been out, you know, of California or Massachusetts or Georgia. I mean, those are the three places I'd been. So I got to, you know, see small towns, drive through all these crazy, awesome places off of interstates and U.S. highways and, um, see the world.
0: All right. So you go from there. So you do that tour, wind us up to, to, to Zach Brown band. So we okay. connect, connect the dots well, so, from there.
1: So basically that tour ended and John had got his record deal with Columbia and Columbia, he made the record room for squares, Columbia put together a tour and said that he, they wanted him to go with full band. And so he'd only ever toured with just a bassist. So he decided he was going to put a full band together. And he started auditioning people for the band, guitar players, and he wasn't finding anybody who he liked. And one day we were sitting around, and you know I play guitar in addition to bass, and I had known all I would known all of his songs because just from living with him, being around him, listening, I already knew how to play them all. He said, "Matt, do you want to come on tour and play guitar in my band?" I said man, I guess, I guess so. It would make sense, wouldn't it? i know the songs. (laughs) And he said, yeah, let's do it. So, um, I played, we did some rehearsals. We played a show in Birmingham at Reg's coffee house. Um, and then we were scheduled to go up to New York city and then nine 11 happened. And, um, you know, it was like, no one knew what, what was going to happen, what was going to go on with this tour. And they decided that, you know, they were going to press through with it. So one week after 9-11, we drew, got in the van trailer and drove up to New York City and we played uh, Irving Plaza. So, you know, that was that was a huge deal because, you know, I mean, I, everyone's got their 9-11 stories. I, I remember riding in on the van and trailer and just seeing people like hosing off their buildings and, you know, people just starting to get, try to get back to life uh, a week later. And so we do this Irving Plaza show and-
0: Do you remember that gig? What was the vibe like at a gig like that after an event like that?
1: I think a lot of people now can probably relate to that vibe. I don't think a year ago people could relate to that vibe, but it's basically like, Everyone was just kind of maybe like stepping outside for the first time. This was the first show they went to, the first public thing maybe that they had done since the attacks. And it was super intense and emotional. And I remember him saying that, you know, one of the things that he said from the stage was, you know, all right, so we've had plenty of moments of silence. You guys have had a week of moments of silence. Now's the time for a moment of music. And that, that quote has stuck with me. You know, to this day, and that was sort of the the theme of the tour. And from then, from that point on, the tour just you know, I mean, his shows, same thing, would double in size. And whereas by the end of that first leg of the tour, um, you know, we were sold out double shows at venues and had to move to larger venues. Um, yeah, so that was you know, that was a wild ride there, and. You know, I got to see it go from this small thing again, you know, the van and trailer, to they switched us over a couple months later to a bus and we were playing uh, Tonight Show with Jay Leno.
0: So you're on, a hell, you're on a hell of a ride at this point.
1: Hell of a ride and uh, so meanwhile, you know, on these, when we would have breaks in the tour, I would go home and I'd play uh, at this bar in Atlanta called The Tin Roof. With my buddy Francisco Vidal, who is like a hustler, you know, he runs these cover bands. So they'll play three or four hours a night in Buckhead at these bars. You know, people just come and get trashed, and he plays all of the the greatest hits. You know, you name it. I know it well. You know it well. Yep. And so um, I would go play with him. You know, when I was home. And one of these nights, uh, a guy came up to me on a on a break. And introduced himself and said his name was Zach Brown and he was playing shows out in West Georgia and asked and said he was looking for a bass player and asked if I would want to come out and play shows with him. So that's what I did. And I would drive out to West Georgia, which was about an hour and a half away, University of West Georgia, and play shows at bars out there. Same thing. But what Zach would do is he would play a few covers and then he would sneak in one of his originals and then a few more covers and sneak in one of his originals and then morph an original into a cover uh and the whole goal was just to keep people dancing all night so um that was how i met zach
0: well and you guys have sort of stuck with that i mean even now the 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 influx of covers and original covers i would call them right that's still a big part of your a big part of your vibe at shows
1: yeah it it really is and uh you know some people kind of beat us up over it but i'm proud of it i we wear it like a badge of honor. Like, you know, these are songs that we, you know, it's sort of like paying tribute to where we, we, we've we come from, where we came from musically and, you know, so. Well,
0: awesome. I, don't, I don't know who criticizes you for that, but as a fan, it's awesome, right? I mean, if you, you know, when you guys do... Def Leopard or James Taylor, there's some novelty to that. I think that the crowd really enjoys, right? Um, it's not that you're just covering other country artists; you're bringing sort of melding genres together. I, I, I think it's you don't actually have to be the one writing the chords and the lyrics to make art out of it, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, and we do try to put a, a spin on it too, like our own version of it. Yep. Uh, there are times where we actually try to, you know, be true to the. To the style, like, hey, let's all learn these parts exactly, and see if we can do it that way. Uh, not always, but sometimes it's it's good exercise and it's fun. Um, so, so yeah, so that uh, that's how I met Zach, and then we basically, you know, at some point, I decided, you know, the thing the, the tour with John was it was getting really big, and you know, personally, I was feeling a little bit out of control. Um, you know, it's really easy to just sort of, you know, go along with something like that, and, and you know, I was young and just indulge in in a lifestyle that's unhealthy, um, and and so at some point i had met I'd met up with some other friends from Berkeley uh, who were in Nashville, and I'd visited Nashville on a break, and we all kind of decided to start a a band, like a recording band, stoop writing band kind of thing. Um, so this is all at the same time that I was having these doubts about about being on this tour and this band opportunity came up. And so I decided to leave John's tour and move to Nashville. And the whole idea was that I would be a co-producer in this band, a co-writer, and I'd be back on playing bass again, which was my sort of my home instrument. So I made the decision to go to Nashville, and then right after that I saw Zach again, and he asked me to go on tour with him and his band. And I had to turn him down and he said i understand someday i'm going to figure out a way to get you in my band so
0: and what year are we at where are we now mid 2000s 2005 six ish okay oh, so all right so this is all happening fast so let's bring it up to current so you join okay. you joined zach brown in 2014
1: so i joined in late 2013. okay and i had i had been familiar with the band i actually uh subbed for the bass player prior to me a couple times uh, when he was on maternity leave. So uh, several different times when he had kids, I would go fill in for a week or so. Um, So I knew the material pretty well. And actually I started working for Zach in 2009. So Zach started a record label called Southern Ground Artists and he had signed a few bands to the label. And so he called me up. Um, We had stayed in touch over the years and asked if I wanted to come play on the records and help produce and just kind of help make these recordings happen so I came to go do that we made the records and it was the idea was that that we had the same band for all three artists you know sort of a Motown style um, situation and then he did a tour Zach Brown Band where these artists would come out and open up for Zach Brown Band and so they decided to put a band together for these artists and I ended up being in that band so I went out on tour as a opening act basically for Zach Brown band with these guys and um, got to know everybody in the van pretty well and you know would go sit in with the band from time to time on a, a song or two just to jam and then uh, so I wrote that out for a while and then at some point Zach decided he wanted to buy a recording studio in Nashville and so I helped him find this studio and he bought the studio we renovated it and I ended up running the studio for a couple of years. It's called Southern Ground Nashville, and it is one of the most beautiful recording studios that you'll ever see. And uh, there's a, I could tell you a whole other story about the studio, which we can talk about later if you like. But, um, and then at some point um, in 2013, they had done some shuffling of, of bass players and they had another guy come play bass for a little while and, and he didn't work out. And then, They made a record uh, with O'Teal Burbridge on bass, who's one of my heroes, um, called The Grohl Session. So that record was done with Dave Grohl uh, producing and playing on it. And I got to be a a tape op, basically, on that session, like, you know, running the tape machine uh, while Dave Grohl was producing, which was quite a ride, too. Um, Because he doesn't tell you what he wants. He just gives you little looks. Like, if he wants you to stop the tape machine, he just kind of puts a finger up and looks at you. So you got to be on it uh, with Dave, with Uncle Dave in that seat, and then after that, uh, O'Teal was going to be in the band, and and then all of a sudden that fell through. And so while we're mixing Girl Sessions, I was at the studio with uh, the engineer, uh, Mike Fraser, who is an amazing engineer too. He's mixed Aerosmith, pump, which is one of my favorite childhood records. So I'm sitting there with this guy who's kind of a hero of mine. And I get a call from Zach. Says, hey, do you think you can come play bass with us? I said, are you sure? He's like, yeah, we need you. So uh, I said, well, let me ask my wife. (laughs) So I checked with my wife and she said, yes, go do this. And uh, so that was end of 2013. And that's kind of how I joined zach brown band
0: well so you've just benefited from being on somebody's speed dial quite a few times along the way
1: you know that's kind of like man i hate to say it but in in the music business it's just being at the right place at the right time sometimes you know it, it's all of that you know but it's also being at the right place and being open open to you know wherever it needs to
0: take you well i think you're being a little humble because it's not like these people stumbled over you right they, they they'd grown to respect you appreciated your talent as a musician knew you were good to be around all those kinds of things that factored into i've got to make one phone call right now who's that phone call to and it seemed to be you quite a bit so i think that says a lot about you um i have to ask one question because i meant to ask it earlier and i'm sure you did it. what do you listen to what do you listen to when you're not playing <laughs>
1: It changes so drastically, um, you know, I'll go through seasons where I'm where I'm on the Spotify, you know, New Music Friday playlist, and just seeing what's out there, um, and sort of discovering that way. And then I go through seasons where my kids will be onto a show, a TV show, or a movie, and like, uh, I think earlier this year they got into Trolls World Tour, the movie, and I got into that soundtrack, and it is so good. Um, you know, like, because they're they're covering tunes, right? But they're putting their own pop, modern pop spin on it, uh, and some of those are like better than the original recordings. Um, and then I'll go like my kids, my old two older kids, my son and daughter are both doing Suzuki violin lessons. They've been doing that for a few years, and that sort of brings me into like the classical world. So they'll they'll learn this like snippet of a classical piece, and then I'll next thing I know, I'll be like on a late night deep dive deep Beethoven dive or something like that you know like (laughs) so I mean it's so all over the map but and sometimes I listen to what I have to so if we're working on a new record you know I'm sort of listening to more inspirational music uh.
0: if you had asked me to make a list of a thousand albums I thought you were going to cite as one that you listened to the Trolls World Tour soundtrack would not have made the (laughs) list of a thousand so that's that's why we do this, Matt. That's awesome to hear. How
1: about you? Like, what what, what do you like to listen to? When
0: I'm not listening to the Zac Brown band? I'm like you. I'm actually... I, I'm a... Well, I do like to mix it up. I think I love bluegrass, so I listened a lot, particularly old bluegrass, um, like Ralph Stanley. My uh, my kids, and I, I sort of got them exposed to it, but then they got hooked on it. My teenage daughters are both really into the Wood Brothers. And I know you know those. I know you know them well. I saw you cover... Um, Oh, shoe fly pie. I saw you cover. Yeah, they're, they're, they're just tremendous. My kids love them. That's probably what's playing in my house most often because one of the two of them that grabs the Alexa or whatever gets it fired up. So that's, that's really something we listen to a lot as a family. So, okay. So, so let's, so you and I got to know each other because the other thing you didn't mention about yourself, although it does touch on your computer science background is you are actually a stats geek. Um, which I don't find to be terribly common among musicians. So you've got both the right, la- right, right brain and left brain moving at once. Um, um, okay, so I wrap all of these up the same way. I'm going to ask you a battery of rapid fire poll questions, really right. random and all over the map, and we're going to get a sense of how normal or, or, or uh, how much of an outlier you are. Number one, which side of the bed do you sleep on?
1: Left side, if you're in the bed.
0: Got it. So that's 38. So actually, uh, men are actually a little more likely to sleep on the right side of the bed. So you're a little bit of an outlier there.
1: I I will say that I switched, though. uh, The last time, one of the last times my wife was pregnant because... She, she the the other side is closer to the door. So I used to be a right side and I switched to the
0: left. All right. I'm not sure many people switch very often. So that's that's a that's a big one. All right. Well then then maybe this is the second related question that that'll tease out which which sides you belong on. But when you when you're not with your with your wife do you take up the whole bed or do you stay on your side of the bed when you stay on my
1: side.
0: That is um, the majority answer. Um, I'm in the take I'm in the take up the whole bed bucket of so 59% of people stay on the side of their bed whether they're with their spouse or not so I I have
1: this fear that if I switch to the other side that I'm not going to be able to find my iPhone in the middle of the night.
0: Good answer. Good answer. (laughs) Good answer. Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Yeah. I mean you spent all that time in Atlanta that has to be your answer you're not allowed to say anything that.
1: Topo Chico.
0: Oh right. Right. How do you how do you like your steak? Medium rare. You are now welcome to come back because that is the only right. That is the only right answer, which surprisingly is only given by 29% of people, which it is Uh, the only way to eat a steak, uh, your favorite dinosaur. Uh,
1: I, I'll defer to my son on that, which is the T-Rex.
0: 27%. That's the number one by a mile. I'm a triceratops person myself, which puts me in the 8% bucket. Last but not least, your preferred type of light bulb.
1: Uh, I have recently switched I used to love LEDs and now I prefer incandescent.
0: Why the switch? It's a big switch
1: because I learned that LEDs are essentially flashing on and off the whole time they're on and It's an imperceptible amount, but if you slow it down Actually, I I figured this out with a slow-mo on my camera I was filming something and I looked at watched it back and I saw the light flickering so then I started researching it and Turns out that's all there is just on and off constantly. And so then I thought, what are these things doing to us? Like, what, is it making me like uh, more anxious or agitated? Like, am I, am I like ruder to my family because of these light bulbs? So, so I, <laughs> I went down and I bought a bunch of cheap incandescent light bulbs and I switched them all out. My wife thinks I'm insane.
0: If we started a YouTube video that said LED lights were the source of all the social unrest in America and that Bill Gates was behind it, we'd get about 35% of the U.S. population to believe that. So
1: I would actually bet that we could probably find that video right now. I think it probably exists. May,
0: may, may very well, it may very well exist. And uh, yeah, people would believe it. They'd blame Bill Gates for it or something. But um, great. Well, LED is 63%. Uh, of Americans, I'm with you on the incandescent personally. I've just never been able to find an LED that gets the sort of right lighting that I want, so I'm a little particular about that. Matt, uh, I can't thank you enough. This was such a fascinating conversation. Um, you've just, you've been on this amazing journey. And, and again, I want to reiterate, I I think you've made your success for you by being a great guy, obviously a super talented musician, uh, your, your perspective on the industry that that's been able to afford you over time, as you know, super fascinating to me. Uh, I love, I love meeting people that are stats geeks that, um, have achieved so much in their in their art and their field. so really enjoyed having you here. I'd love to have you back again sometime, but uh, in the meantime, as soon as I can come see you guys at a show, you know I'll be there, and uh, hopefully that's not too far off in the in the distant future. So great to see you, man. Stay safe. Um, keep rocking. I'll
1: talk Thank to you soon, you John. Thank to you. stay safe and uh, say hello to your family.